Hi, Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 839, interview number two with Peter Lavenda about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on March 15th of the year 2015. Once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airways Peter Lavenda, author of, among other titles, The Hitler Legacy, which is the focal point of this discussion and uh, will be the focal point of uh, some interviews to come as well, as well as, for the record, 838. Peter, welcome back to our airways. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we actually get into the subject material, Peter, uh, over the decades I've been doing this program, uh, perhaps the most common question that I get asked uh, or the most common comment that I get, people say, well, you know, I believe what you're saying, but I feel completely overwhelmed by the material, and I don't know what to do. I feel helpless. What can I do? And I would like to suggest that what people can do is to buy the Hitler legacy, read it, and tell other people about it, and uh, sort of spread the word, so to speak. It is a book that gets the Dave Emery five-star rating, and I think that other than the Secret War Against the Jews by John Loftus and Mark Ahrens. There has never been uh, a single book with so much of the material that I talk about between the covers. And that's remarkable because it's not a very long book. And as I indicated to you in an email this past week, Peter, uh, you have bridged chasms that I have spent decades looking to uh, cover uh, myself, and uh, it is um, just a remarkable, remarkable book, and uh, we owe you, all of us owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. Now, uh, what I'd like to do, uh, we were talking about the genesis of global jihad, something that is absolutely on the front journalistic burner these days with ISIS and al-Qaeda and the shootings in Paris and so forth. And I'd like to uh, recap uh, some of what we talked about last week and carry that discussion further. And in a chapter of your book called, appropriately enough, The Origin of Global Jihad, you talk about uh, Max von Oppenheim, and the First World War, and how uh, global jihad actually began as an altogether cynical, if somewhat inspired gambit, uh, by the colonial powers that were warring in World War One. I. I wonder if you would develop that further for us. Certainly. Uh, I'd be happy to. This is a part of the history of the 20th century that has so many repercussions and reverberations to today. If we could only understand the context, we might understand what's going on a little better. What we had was a man called Max von Oppenheim. He was born in 1860. His mother was Catholic, but his father was Jewish. He was a a Jewish convert, recently, basically, to Catholicism. He was the heir, one of the heirs, to the Oppenheim banking dynasty. So he was uh, came from a very well-known family, a very prominent family, but his love was not banking. His love was the Middle East. His love was archaeology, uh, going to far-flung locales and uh, and going native, as it were. Uh, Max von Oppenheim spent a great deal of time 
doing amateur archaeology work in North Africa, in Egypt, Libya, uh, and in the Middle East itself. So he had uh, a lot of background in the area. He uh, had some knowledge of Arabic. He basically became a kind of potentate on his own. Uh, he had an apartment not far from Al-Azhar University in Cairo. Uh, he was very well known among the expatriate community. He was generally considered to be a spy for the Kaiser. They pretty much understood this guy was, uh, was representing German interests in the Middle East as well, that his archaeology might have served as a kind of front for what he was doing. They're very similar to how people would view later on T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and his position in the Middle East, also as an archaeologist, also as a spy for his government. What happened was, as World War I is about to break out, Max von Oppenheim, who was a friend of the Kaiser, who had the Kaiser's ear on a lot of issues pertaining to Islam and to North Africa, uh, suggested to the, to the Kaiser that an effort be made to convince the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, in Istanbul, to declare a global jihad against the colonial powers, in this case meaning the British, the French, and the Russians. Von Oppenheim thought, believing himself to be an expert on the area and an expert on Islam, that if such a thing as a global jihad could be conceived and executed, that it would mean that all Muslims anywhere around the world would rise up against the specifically the British, the French, and the Russians, um, possibly also the Dutch. The call also went out to the Muslims who were living in the Dutch East Indies, what we now know as Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, so there was this idea that um, a rise against the foreign powers everywhere in the world would not only be politically advantageous and militarily advantageous, but also economically. It would rob the colonial uh, powers of their economic resources, raw material resources, and strategic locations around the world. So this was, a, this was the idea behind it. There was no other way to do this because the Muslims basically were under the control of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Uh, they owed a kind of lip service to the caliph uh, from other countries around the world. So Oppenheim said, please, let's go and convince the sultan. And the sultan, of course, was an ally of Germany just as World War I was breaking out. And they got together, and the sultan said, it sounds like a good idea. So the sultan and his mufti, the religious leader in Istanbul, who was nominally the religious leader for all Muslims, issued a fatwa, a declaration that all Muslims anywhere in the world should rise up in jihad against the colonial powers. This was a commandment, you might say, by the leader of, of their religion to say that you should go, go forth and do this. Well, it was an interesting idea. It had a great deal of possibilities, but it did not take into consideration the real situation in the Middle East, which is that religion was one aspect of the problem, but it wasn't the only aspect of the problem. This is something we would do well to remember today. Religion was only part of what was going on in the Middle East. There was tremendous tribal conflicts and rivalries among various of the Arab tribes. You know, the Turks were not Arabs. The Turks were Muslims, nominally at least, but they were not Arabs. They, did not sh they didn't speak Arabic. They didn't share some of the same uh, cultural background, linguistic, uh, social backgrounds and contexts of the Middle East. In fact, within the Middle East itself, the tribes were fighting each other. So there was tremendous internecine conflict taking place in the Middle East, as there is today. Um, that hasn't changed. So what happened was the Germans tried to take advantage of what they thought was a flashpoint 
in the in the Middle East, and it turned out to sort of backfire against them. The fatwa was issued. Uh, the Turks commanded basically all Muslims under their control, plus all the Muslims around the world, to rise up against the English, the French, and the Russians. And as it turned out, that didn't really work. We had Max von Oppenheim's opposite number in the Middle East, T.E. Lawrence, another archaeologist, uh, working in this case for British intelligence, who then tried to start and successfully uh, manipulated the Arab revolt in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he sided with the Hashemite ruler, King uh, Prince Faisal, and the idea was they were going to fight against the Turks. They were going to beg, borrow, and steal whatever armaments they could, whatever intelligence they could get a hold of, and try to form an alliance of all the Arab tribes against the Ottoman Empire. That did not work out 100%. Not all of the Arab tribes were consistent in their opposition to the Ottoman Empire. Some had to be bought, and if you stop paying them, they flipped over to the other side. Um, but in the end, of course, the Arab revolt did work. Uh, Allenby marched into Jerusalem and into Damascus. Uh, so did Lawrence and the, the Arab revolt. And everything should have been fine because Lawrence had promised all of the Arabs uh, who partook in the Arab revolt their freedom. He promised them liberty and independence. Uh, and this was just never going to happen. And that will lead us to the story of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Declaration, and so on and so forth. Uh, yes, uh, very quickly, uh, the British also promised the Jews something very similar, basically, uh, their own homeland and autonomy in exchange for uh, some cooperation in the combat of World War One, And both the Arabs and the Jews slash Zionists were ultimately betrayed. And uh, if you would go into that for us and... Uh, go from that into a point of discussion that you highlight in or set forth in uh, the Hitler legacy where the post-World War I betrayal by the colonial powers, in this case uh, Britain and France, led to an attitude of betrayal by a global conspiracy, sort of a stab in the back, by a global conspiracy that was not unlike or, or could be said to be resonant with the feeling in Germany among the German elite at the end of World War One. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's a very complex uh, situation, but really the lineaments of this are not that uh, difficult to grasp, although it's a very complex area with a complex history. But as we know, what was going on was the British were desperately trying to form as many alliances as possible uh, to prosecute this war and to defeat Kaiser's Germany and to defeat the Axis powers. In order to do this, they made promises to everyone. They made promises to the, the Arabs. They also wrote the Balfour Declaration. I believe that was in 1917. Lord Balfour um, agreed that at the end of World War I, should they be victorious, that the uh, Jewish people, the Zionists, basically, this promise was made to the Zionist Congress and many of the Zionist uh, operators in England and in Europe, that they would have a Jewish homeland. Once and for all, they would have their homeland. It would be in Palestine, their hereditary home, the site of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, and that nobody need know about this ahead of time. There were no Arab signatories to the Balfour Declaration. There was a kind of an agreement uh, with Prince Faisal, who said that he had no objections to there being a Jewish homeland in Palestine. However, in Faisal's, uh, from his perspective, he felt that he would be the king 
of that region. He would be the ruler of that entire region because he was promised this by the British, and that therefore he would allow uh, the Jews to establish their own uh, homeland within this greater Arab nation that he believed he was in the process of creating. There were a lot of promises made to a lot of different Arab leaders. Everybody got 100% of whatever it was that they wanted, which meant, of course, that nobody got anything. And so as this started to fall apart at the Versailles Treaty, the Versailles Conference, uh, even before and after, it turned out that the Jews had been promised a homeland, the Arabs had been promised independence and liberty, Prince Faisal had been made promises uh, to, as well as uh, Ibn Saud, of the Wahhabi branch of some of the Arab tribes in Arabia. Everybody had been given promises. Everyone had been paid off. Everyone had been seduced, essentially, by the British especially, and to some extent by the French, that they were going to get anything that they wanted in the Middle East as long as the Turks were defeated. Well, the Turks are defeated. Everyone is now coming up to the table, preparing to have their banquet of the land that they were promised. We had the Zionists on the one side. We had various Arab factions, each side believing that they had the, uh, the, the prime of place in this arrangement. And in the end, no one got anything. What happened was the Sykes-Picot Agreement between the British and the French was signed. Uh, spheres of influence were demarcated. Uh, access to oil fields in the Suez Canal uh, was uh, created uh, by divvying up the Middle East into various little countries that had not existed prior to this. Iraq is the creation of Sykes-Picot, as was Kuwait, uh, Jordan, Syria, uh, present boundaries of Egypt, Libya, and, of course, Palestine or Israel. All of these things came to pass almost directly at the end of World War I. By 1920, it became obvious to Palestinians living in the street, uh, people walking in the streets of Jerusalem and elsewhere in the, in the Holy Land, that suddenly the independence they thought they were going to get was not going to happen. You had British troops. Uh, on the ground. You had French troops on the ground in what became Syria. Uh, you had foreign troops everywhere, and suddenly in the newspapers there was the report that a vast section of Palestine was going to be a Jewish homeland, an independent state uh, without Arab governance. Um, it suddenly looked as though everything that had been talked about in that infamous hoax, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion about a worldwide conspiracy of Jews and industrialists and bankers and European governments against the world looked like it was coming true. Uh, and then back in Germany, Germany had just lost the war. Um, the Soviet Union had just been created. Now there was a Bolshevik movement abroad in the land. There were communists and socialists in Germany trying to take over that country. And it appeared to the Germans on the street that, again, there was a worldwide global conspiracy of Jews and other foreign countries against Germany and against the rest of the world. So suddenly the Palestinians in Palestine and the Germans on the street after Versailles suddenly saw themselves in the same boat. Their land was being carved up by the British and the French. Um, they were in, unable to control their own destinies. Their own economy was in shambles, was being controlled um, by, the Euro by the other European powers. Their military was being uh, decimated, and the whole thing had turned out to be a complete mess. So in Palestine in the 1920s, you had the beginning of the Palestinian riots. You had riots against the British and against the Jews, uh, primarily against the Jews, directed by Amir al-Husseini, who had fought with the Ottoman Turks during World War I and now uh, had become uh, the de facto leader 
of the revolt in uh, in Palestine, uh, declaring himself or being declared through a, a series of Byzantine arrangements, he became the religious leader of all the uh, Muslims in Palestine. And he was arguing for a war against the Jews and to some extent against the British. The British were standing by in this circumstance in the 1920s and the 1930s. The attitude of the British soldier on the street was let the Jews and the Arabs fight it out amongst themselves, let's stay out of it, and let's kind of hope the Arabs win, because there was not a lot of um, sympathy for the Jews at that point in Palestine. So you had a, a terrible political mess. This quagmire is exactly what we face today. The liniments of this are basically the same. Um, not much has changed. There are tribal conflicts, cultural and ethnic conflicts that go back centuries, if not longer. You have, um, let's not be distracted by the Shia-Sunni conflict because there's much more to that problem than that. Uh, the Iranians support these days for, uh, for, for Iraq in their fight against the Islamic State. Um, and our, our problem of whether we're supposed to support Iran against the Islamic State or at the same time force Iran to come to the table over nuclear talks, the whole thing is part of this entire mess that was created back in 1918. We are still suffering from this. This is, uh, this is something that has not gone away. And the average person on the street in the Middle East is still talking about the Balfour Declaration, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, being betrayed by the British and the French back in 1918 and 1919, the failure of the Arab revolt to gain liberty and uh, independence, autonomy for the Arab peoples, uh, the involvement of the foreign powers in oil, in the canal, and everything else. This is all still part of that. They go back to their history books, and they read a, quite a different history than we read here in the United States. Uh, in uh, a future interview, I'd like to talk about uh, Hajamein al-Husseini and uh, his uh, eventual uh, work on behalf of the Third Reich, um, because in, I think you call it fascists and uh, fedayeen, uh, we talk about how uh, some of these resonant attitudes eventually lead to a military and political synthesis, which in turn has evolved uh, through the decades and uh, has, has haunted us today, and we'll get into uh, in the future a uh, discussion of, mili of uh, militarized or weaponized religion. Uh, you present something in uh, your book which you call the Grand Unified Theory of Islamist Terrorism, which was synthesized at this point in time, and it really grew out of von Oppenheim's uh, gambit. If you would uh, detail that for us. Uh, sure. I call it the Grand Unified Theory of Islamist Terrorism because it was the, uh, the idea that um, if you were anti-Zionist, you were simultaneously anti-Semitic. This was part of the, of the Grand Unified Theory. So to, to be against politically the establishment of the state of Israel in Arab territory in Palestine, uh, if you were against that, then you were anti-Semitic. And you were at least morally, you know, partaking in the Holocaust if you were to make that kind of an assumption. So you're not able to be anti-Zionist unless you are also anti-Semitic. But part of the other problem is that it was believed that the Jews had created Bolshevism, had created communism and socialism, that they were uh, using this as a means of sort of um, destabilizing uh, the status quo, of trying to uh, divide and conquer all of the other uh, peoples 
uh, under their supposed control. So part of the protocols of the elders of Zion, of course, was to create this kind of instability in foreign governments uh, and to put Jewish uh, people and Jewish organizations in control of this. And what better than Bolshevism, communism or socialism, however you want to uh, define it in the terms of the 1920s and 1930s, that this was um, part of the plan. So the anti-Zionism became anti-Semitism and the verification, the validation of anti-Semitism was, well, the Jews had created communism. Communism is atheism. It's obviously quite evil. It's against everything capitalism stands for. It's against everything the West stands for. So that's part of the, the theory as well. And the, the second part, the third part, rather, of this theory, after you go through anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and the Jews creating communism, is that the other races, the other European powers, were going to cooperate with the Jews in uh, fomenting this particular agenda in furthering the cause. So you were going to have the English and the French in this case, and eventually the Americans were brought into it as countries that were willingly cooperating with the Jews in order to create this worldwide destabilization. And in this, this um, atmosphere of destabilization, the Jewish Masonic world conspiracy would take over and uh, everybody else would be enslaved uh, to this particular conspiracy. That's the, the grand unified theory. So jihad was the only way, according to the jihadist theorists, the only way to defend um, the, the Arabs in general and the Muslims in particular from this worldwide conspiracy. You had to rise up against all of the Christians all of the communists and socialists and Bolsheviks. You had to rise up against everybody who was not Muslim because the non-Muslims had formed this conspiracy to divide up that land. And it looks that way. You, you have to understand the environment in which this was created. We, we tend to think in terms of black and white and make very uh, sharp distinctions between good guys and bad guys. But in the Middle East at that time, the Arab revolt had been betrayed. And it had been betrayed by the West. And one of the fruits of that betrayal was the creation of the State of Israel. So it appeared as if it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, everything was there. Everything had happened the way the protocols said they would. So this grand unified theory, uh, this is what the Islamists still use today. They use this particular framework, this template, to say that, yes, this is what happened. The Arab, the, uh, excuse me, the Jews, the Jewish bankers and the industrialists and the communists got together with the English and the French and the Americans uh, and other colonial powers, and they took over. They enslaved all the peoples of the Middle East, North Africa, which meant basically Muslims. Although there were many Christians in that part of the world, some of whom also were involved in the Arab liberation movements, it soon became a, a more or less a Muslim, quote-unquote, movement, and uh, this was the Grand Unified Theory. We have to fight against the Jewish, communist, European, colonial um, conspiracy to deprive us of our human rights, to deprive us of our land, to deprive us of our natural resources. And by the way, they hate Islam, and they're going to try to destroy our religion, too. Uh, in, the, in the contemporary period, we're also seeing, of course, uh, attacks like the Paris shootings and other attacks on civilians, and one of the points that you make in connection with the grand unified theory of Islamist terrorism is that the development of the concept of total war was part of this, and so the 
attacks on civilians that we're seeing now also had its origins in this precise period. Develop that for us, if you would. Certainly. In fact, this goes back again to our friend Max von Oppenheim. Von Oppenheim understood that the, uh, the Muslim peoples or the Arab peoples in general in that part of the world, in North Africa and the Middle East, did not have access to advanced weaponry. They didn't have access to the machineries of war the way the colonial powers did. So they were going to have to wage war in a completely different way. They would have to wage a guerrilla war. They would have to start with assassinations of political leaders and military leaders. They were going to have to wage a very dirty war. And in order to do this, they were going to have to uh, incur civilian casualties as well. Um, the idea was total war. And this was a concept that was developed by a very famous uh, German general called Ludendorff, who at uh, one point marched with Hitler in the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923. Uh, this was a general who was a, a well-respected military commander uh, out of World War I and before World War I. And Ludendorff himself had come up with this idea of total war, the idea that, number one, the natural state of any uh, of humans in general, of humanity, is warfare. War is the natural state. He's a social Darwinist in this sense, uh, survival of the fittest, if I can reduce uh, Darwin's elaborate arguments to a couple of phrases. Um, so we have survival of the fittest, and according to Ludendorff, that meant that people had to remain in a state of total war. And total war meant an entire population fighting an entire other population, men, women, and children included, because the men, women, and children who were not actually fighting in the war were helping to uh, prosecute the war by developing weapons, by uh, uh, growing food and shipping food to the troops and all of this. Total war meant you had to rob the army of any possibility that it might survive. You had to destroy its food, you had to destroy its water, its fuel, its equipment, and that meant destroying the civilian populations. Max von Oppenheim believed in this as well. He believed that the only way the Arab revolts against the uh, colonial powers would succeed would be if the uh, Arabs did the same thing, if they went after men, women, and children, if they terrorized the populations, if they used whatever, uh, by whatever means necessary to attack uh, to form a kind of a rear guard action against the colonial powers as the Turks and the Germans uh, moved in and tried to consolidate their positions. So total war was a creation, once again, of, of Germans, but Max von Oppenheim then ported that concept over to the actual Arab revolt against uh, England and France and Russia by saying this is what you have to do. Assassinations, targeted assassinations, um, independent bands, guerrilla warfare, uh, guerrilla bands that would uh, operate independently of each other, the idea of individual cells, uh, like for instance you have with Al-Qaeda, um, lone wolf attacks, all of this was being prom uh, promulgated, these ideas by Max von Oppenheim, uh, as a way to, to continue the war uh, at the hands of people who really had no real weapons to speak of. They didn't have tanks or airplanes. Uh, they didn't have the mechanized warfare that World War I made so famous. All they had were camels and, uh, and swords and whatever, whatever ancient weapons they could get their hands on. So you can't fight a pitched battle that way. You can't go up against the English and the French this way, but you can terrorize them. You can assassinate their leaders. You can kill their women and children. You can make the idea of continuing the war seem distasteful. And that was the creation of von Oppenheim and Ludendorff, and it was created especially for the war in the Middle East.
Uh, in Europe, of course, uh, during the 1920s, the uh, Nazi party, the NSDAP, was developing. And when, the, when Hitler came to power, when the Nazi party uh, took over Germany, you discuss what happened in a global sense when Nazi ideologues basically were placed into uh, positions of influence around the world. Develop that for us, if you would. Yes, this is something that we also don't quite appreciate about the uh, the overall agenda of the Nazi party uh, under Hitler. Um, when Hitler came to power in 1933, he became Chancellor of the Reich. Uh, he eventually began replacing everyone in foreign offices, uh, German uh, embassies and consulates around the world, with his own people. This is to be expected, I suppose. But by the same token, he also made sure that there were Nazi party officials in each of these locations. So it wasn't merely that the embassies and the consulates would represent Germany as a country. They were also there to represent the Nazi party as a political force in those countries, which meant that the Nazi party in, for instance, Santiago, Chile, would start to develop Nazi party or, uh, organs within Chile, within the Chilean society, which was done. Um, the reports are coming out. Uh, by American intelligence at the end of World War II show thousands of Chilenos, thousands of Chilean citizens had joined the Nazi party. It was a very vibrant Nazi party in those days. The same in Argentina, uh, in Paraguay, Uruguay, Brazil, uh, on and on. There were Nazi party organizations in Colombia, uh, in Venezuela, in Central America. So just from the point of view of the Americas alone, you had an enormous uh, presence of the Nazi party there. This inimical force, this force that was hostile to capitalism, that was hostile to, um, to the, the former colonial powers of England, France, uh, Russia, etc. Suddenly they were all over the place. Uh, you had to deal with a, uh, an espionage uh, factor as well, because the Nazi party organs also included uh, members of the Secret Service of the Gestapo, uh, who were also placed in these positions in foreign countries. So suddenly you had a worldwide espionage ring that was at the service of a specific political party, not of the German government per se, not of uh, the way we do. For instance, of course, we'll have CIA officers in every embassy and consulate around the world as well, but they're there to serve uh, the United States government, at least ostensibly. What we have in the case of the Nazi party situation is that these people had an oath to the Fuhrer. They took an oath to Hitler himself. They were following his orders and the orders of the Nazi party. There was no constitution that they were swearing allegiance to. There was not even a country they were swearing allegiance to. They were swearing allegiance to this philosophy. Um, and so you had the presence of the Nazi party everywhere you looked, including, of course, in the United States. So the embassies uh, in the United States and the consulate offices also had Nazi party members and fifth columnists, you might call them spies, people working for the Gestapo, for the German Secret Service. So this was something that was kind of new uh, in the world. You had a global presence uh, wherever there was a Nazi party, wherever there was a German consulate, rather, or embassy, you had the Gestapo, including in Japan. You know, So you had uh, this bizarre circumstance where you had a, uh, a German embassy in Japan in the 1930s going into the war, uh, which had which staffed with the Gestapo officers, uh, Secret Service men, and, and that sort of thing. It was all over the place. It was in China. It was in uh, all over Asia and Southeast Asia. So you had a pervasive presence, not just of Germany. You have to make that distinction. It was not just of Germany, which would be normal 
the, all countries have their embassies and consulates. But this was embassies and consulate systems as a medium through which the Nazi party could then support Nazi ideology in those countries where they were located. Uh, in, of course, uh, the U.S., uh, the, this same phenomenon that took place last week, we spoke about the uh, fifth column that was operating in the U.S. and the Pelopenko affair. I'd like to revisit that uh, briefly. If you would just briefly encapsulate the Pelopenko affair and uh, specifically how uh, Pelopenko uh, uncovered the activities of a fellow named John Koops, that's K-O-O-S, and for whom he was working and the Ukrainian fascist underground that was active in the U.S. allied with the Germans prior to and uh, during World War II. Certainly. Um, the Ukrainian fascist underground is something um, with which I have some even personal familiarity going back to my my early days in the Bronx um, when I was aware of an organization called the American Orthodox Catholic Church. Uh, this was a church that was run by a Ukrainian priest uh, who then became a Ukrainian uh, bishop, or a bishop anyway, in the American Orthodox Catholic Church, a very, uh, uh, I should say, violent anti-communist, uh, someone who made all the rounds of all the television shows and uh, back in the 1950s and radio and uh, was very, very prominent in the anti-communist crusade. And he was Ukrainian. He was part of the entire Ukrainian Orthodox um, machinery that existed in the United States at the time. Uh, he was so prominent that uh, he showed me once a letter he received from uh, uh, Thomas Dewey promising him he would be the White House chaplain should Dewey win the election against Truman. Well, we know that how that happened. Uh, Dewey lost, Truman stayed in, and so the person that I knew, Bishop uh, Walter or Vladimir uh, Profeta, never got the chance to be White House chaplain, but he continued his anti-communist activities underground uh, through the rest of his life, as far as I know. The Pelipenko affair is one example of what was going on. Pelipenko was a priest, uh, a Ukrainian priest, he was ordained, I believe, in 1915, but by the 1930s, we see him in Germany, in Munich. Uh, he then started working in Argentina in the late 1930s for the Gestapo. Pelipenko was a priest. He was Ukrainian, but he was pro-Nazi. And the reason was very simple. Uh, the Soviet Union had taken over Ukraine, uh, was trying to wipe out the Ukrainian language, trying to wipe out Ukrainian culture, replace it with Russian. Um, and so there was a very large, very vocal uh, group of Ukrainians who wanted this to come to an end, and they saw Hitler as their way out, as their key to freedom. Pelipenko initially was one of these. Pelipenko believed that uh, Hitler would be able to liberate Ukraine and uh, make of Ukraine an independent state, destroy the Soviet Union. Uh, he thought Hitler was going to do all of this. But by 1937, 38, 39, he started to have a change of heart. In 1940, he was in Chile, uh, and at some point, he had a change of heart there. Probably it was the, um, uh, the Hitler-Stalin uh, alliance, the accord that was signed, uh, the treaty between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which um, terrified uh, many people, both communists and fascists alike. And so Pelipenko then started to think that maybe he better throw his, his uh, efforts behind the United States, because the United States 
also had uh, skin in the game, you might say. They were also very definitely anti-communist, anti-Soviet Union. So Pelipenko decided he should work for the United States. So basically he defected. We cannot overestimate the importance of this defection. Although we don't hear about it in the history books, very little is made of it. Uh, there is information on the FBI's own website about this affair. It's not that deep, but it's there. Pelipenko was basically the the Robert Hansen or the Aldrich Ames of his time. He was a high-ranking Gestapo officer with excellent connections to the Nazi underground in South America and North America who decides to defect to the FBI. He decides to defect to the United States and basically spill his guts about all sorts of uh, conspiracies that were taking place in the United States. He was um, responsible for uncovering the existence of a Nazi assassin in the United States who was going to kill President Roosevelt. They found him and they killed him. He was responsible for uh, blowing networks of uh, Russian, of, excuse me, of, of Nazi secret agents in North America and in Mexico and other countries uh, successfully. They rounded up these people, they blew the networks. Um, this was a man who was extremely important uh, as far as all the information he contained in his head. And so the FBI decided to use him even more aggressively, more proactively. And they sent him right into the heart of the Nazi underground in the United States, which means to people like Father Coughlin, I believe we mentioned him uh, last week, right. and to, uh, to Vonsiatsky, uh, who was a very strange guy. Uh, he had an estate in Connecticut. He was a white Russian. Uh, he created his own fascist organization his own pro-Nazi organization that wanted to see the Soviet Union destroyed and was working with uh, right-wing extremists, Ukrainians, Russians, other ethnicities uh, in the United States to do this. And he had a very close working relationship with Father Coughlin. And Coughlin and Vonsiaski together had very close relationships with more uh, violent members of the Nazi underground. Coughlin was sort of... Uh, the spokesperson. He had his own radio program. He constantly was railing against the Jews, talking about communism and anti-Semitism in the same breath. Um, but underneath, he was actually very prominent in the Nazi underground itself. So uh, we sent... Yes, go on. Yeah, no, uh, John Kuz uh, specifically was part of this underground, working with uh, both with the, Henry Ford yeah. and the, the uh, Third Reich Intelligence Service. And with uh, Fritz, uh, Fritz Kuhn of the uh, German-American Bund. Um, we tend to think of the German-American Bund as kind of this comical group of, you know, uh, uh, comic opera Nazis, you might say. But they were not. They were extremely um, active. They were extremely dangerous at the time. Um, Fritz Kuhn actually worked for Ford Motor Company, as did John Kuss, who you just mentioned. Uh, John Kuss was so prominent in the Nazi underground in the United States that Hitler was going to make him the Ministry of Internal Affairs for the newly liberated Ukraine when that happened. That was John Kuss, and he lived in the United States in Detroit working for Henry Ford, working for the Ford Motor Company, as did Fritz Kuhn, as did a lot of, of, of these individuals. There was a, uh, a point uh, we mentioned uh, the last interview where um, the, uh, the anti-Semites in the United States said that the, the Jews we're bringing in Jewish immigration, Jewish immigrants from Europe, firing um, Christians and hiring Jews to work for them in their stores and in their shops. This was part of the, the new version of the blood libel. Well, the same thing was actually happening in reality within Ford Motor Company. John Coos, 
Fritz Kuhn and all of these other guys were together making sure that Ukrainian right-wingers were being employed by Ford Motor Company and that they would, number one, uh, uh, promulgate the Nazi doctrine, the anti-Semitic doctrine, but also, number two, make sure that uh, anybody working at Ford Motor Company was towing the, the party line as well, literally the party line, the Nazi party line. So you had um, this, this huge group of, of people working for Ford Motor who were uh, actually at the same time working for Hitler, working for the German-American Bund, working for Coughlin, for von Siatsky, and for a lot of uh, individual cells and lone wolf operators in the United States. And that's the environment we sent Father Pelipenko into, this former uh, Gestapo agent. He had excellent credentials. Everybody uh, believed him when he showed up. He was considered to be virtually an emissary from Adolf Hitler. And Pelipenko blew the lid off of you know, a major conspiracy uh, involving Coughlin and some of the other uh, ethnic Ukrainian and Russian groups that were planning to uh, sabotage U.S. industry, uh, blow up railroads and all of this in order to keep the United States from being able to successfully involve itself in the war against Germany. Uh, Pelipenko was the person who uncovered this successfully. And as I think we mentioned, uh, Pelipenko's reward for all of this was that he got thrown in jail by the United States government. They said he had overstayed his visa. Now, I've been thinking about this ridiculous circumstance uh, for a couple of years now as I was researching the Pelipenko affair, and I've come to a different conclusion. I don't think that this was some kind of screw-up uh, by the U.S. government, that uh, you know they, they found he had overstayed his visa, so some bureaucrat, some faceless uh, a paper pusher somewhere decided that uh, you know, Pelipenko had to be deported, or if not deported, then, then put in jail. I think um, that Pelipenko knew too much. Uh, he knew where the bodies were buried. Uh, he knew too much about the underground, the extent of it, especially including American industrial corporations, uh, including, of course, Ford Motor, but other corporations as well. I think that Pelipenko had to be kept quiet. They couldn't kill him, but they did the best, next best thing. They kept him in jail for the duration of the war. Um, they couldn't have him running around loose in the United States talking to people about the things that he knew. And I think this was just one way to silence him, to keep him on ice in case they needed him for other uh, information later on, in case intelligence had some requirements. And I think that's what they did. They couldn't let him run free, so instead they put him in jail and they just monitored him, monitored him uh, during the war. Uh, I'd like to uh, digress uh, briefly uh, in a previous book, although this also talks about uh, Ford Motor Company and the Nazi Fifth Column in uh, Chile. Uh, you spoke in your previous book, Unholy Alliance, about uh, a guy named Michael Vernon Townley, who was the son of a Ford Motor uh, Company employee in Chile. And you made, uh, in, in connection with your own hands-on investigation in Chile, uh, you made a trip to Colonia Dignidad. That was a hair-raising uh, episode. Certainly reading about it was hair-raising. I've no doubt that doing it was more so, in that uh, Colonia Dignidad was not Club Med. If you would uh, detail that for us. <laughs> Certainly. Um, the number of issues uh, involving Colonia Dignidad and my visit there. Um, Ford Motor Company as as we know, I think as your listeners know, created by Henry Ford, who was an anti-Semite, notorious anti-Semite. He was one of the uh, the only Americans ever awarded uh, Hitler's highest um, uh, award that he could give to a, a non-German. 
Uh, he and Mussolini the same year were awarded this medal by Hitler. Uh, Henry Ford was a uh, financier of the Third Reich in the days when it was just a glimmer in Hitler's eye. Uh, in the days before the Beer Hall Putsch, Hitler was already sending money to the Nazi party. He was publishing articles, uh, which later became a book called The International Jew. Uh, Henry Ford's book can be found virtually anywhere on this planet in virtually every language imaginable. Uh, I came across copies of it throughout South America and Asia uh, in all different kinds of languages. Uh, Henry Ford is probably more famous in those countries for his anti-Semitism than he is for his cars. So you have the Henry Ford Corporation, and it seems like we're singling out Henry Ford, but actually there were so many corporations and so many organizations that were uh, had pro-Nazi or extreme right-wing sentiments that it's not funny. I worked at the time I went to Colonia Dignidad for a company called the Bendix Corporation. And the Bendix Corporation was worldwide, a massive global organization, 80,000 employees at the time. Uh, and its uh, members in various countries were being uh, rounded up by uh, left-wing uh, partisans in Uruguay, in Argentina, and places like that. Um, so it's, it's something that's kind of endemic to a lot of very large American and other multinational corporations. But to get to the story, I was investigating um, the link between religion and politics back in the 1970s. I found that we in the United States are brought up to believe there's a separation between church and state. We don't quite understand it, um, what that means exactly. But the actual separation is very is a legal one. It's quite tenuous in actual life there isn't much of a separation between the two. And so I was fascinated by the fact that there was a colony in Chile, in the Andes Mountains, uh, a couple of hours south of Santiago, the capital, that was a Nazi encampment. It was also a religious um, center of some kind, um, and it seemed to have something to do with the Pinochet regime. Now, for those listeners who are too young to remember, in 1973, on September 11th, 1973, the government of Salvador Allende was overthrown in a military coup um, by the generals of Chile. Allende was a socialist. He had been elected uh, democratically in Chile, but as we know from the, uh, the tapes and the documents that have come down to us uh, at the time, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger decided that Allende could not be allowed uh, to remain in power in Chile, and so they organized a military coup against him. They financed uh, his opposition parties, they financed the unions to go on strike. They did whatever they could to make sure that Allende would not stay in power. So by 1973, he was overthrown. Uh, a general called Pinochet took over the country as president for life. He disbanded the, the uh, Congress, the Chilean Congress was disbanded, the Supreme Court was disbanded. All of that was thrown out the window, and the entire country was placed under martial law. Well, that was in 73. In 1979, Six years later, I decided I was going to go and research this colony in the Andes Mountains because it sounded fascinating. Um, Ladislas Farago had written about it in a book called Aftermath. He mentioned it once or twice. It was too tantalizing to uh, not you know, to pass up. I had heard other Chileans in New York City, where I lived at the time, uh, reference it with horror, and it sounded just like something I needed to research for the, the, the book that I was writing, the book that became Unholy Alliance. So I went down to Santiago, uh, and then I took a bus uh, all the way down to a, a small town called Parral. And in Parral, uh, again, we're, it's martial law. Uh, I arrive in the town at 4 o'clock in the morning. 
I'm apprehended by some uh, military people, the Carabineros down there, who the police and the military were the same in those days. And they were very friendly, but they told me not to go to the colony. They said it was very dangerous. Uh, they didn't like the Germans who were up there. They operated uh, extraterritorially as if they were an embassy or a consulate. Um, people in Peral were scared to death of them. Plus, they were being financed. Their money was coming in from all over the world to keep the colony alive. Well, I decided I was going to go anyway. Um, after drinking aguardiente with these guys, uh, uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, dawn comes up on Sunday morning. I decide uh, I'm going to go anyway. I find someone to drive me up to the colony. Um, we drive up on a Sunday morning at the end of June, and uh, I come out of the car just to take a few pictures. I don't see anybody. I don't uh, see any sign of human habitation, but the colony is obviously very well maintained, a beautiful-looking uh, uh, parking lot entranceway. I take a few photographs. I jump back in the car, and we never make it out. Uh, what happens is a gate closes in front of us, an electronic gate. Uh, a white Mercedes pulls out in front of us. The doors open. All these very large human beings come out of the car. We're surrounded suddenly by all sorts of people, including a lot of people wearing blue laboratory coats, like doctors or scientists of some kind, um, maybe working in a laboratory or a medical institution. So they've surrounded the car. Uh, they're demanding to see my passport. They take the film out of my camera. They take my passport away. I don't know what they do with it. I believe they were photocopying it. Uh, I'm interrogated, but I'm still in the car. I haven't left the car. My driver is being interrogated as well. Uh, they're asking him how many there are uh, of us. In other words, how many I came in with, uh, where we're staying, uh, all, all these ideas as if I'm part of a Jewish commando unit um, coming to attack the colony. It, was, it would have been funny if it wasn't so terrifying. But eventually they hand me back the passport, and uh, they tell me that I'm no longer welcome in the country, in the entire country of Chile, that I had better leave immediately, go back to the United States. Um, I, I was lucky to be alive, in other words, as far as they were concerned. So I do make it back. Um, on the way back to Santiago, I'm on a bus going back to the capital, to my hotel room. The bus is entered by soldiers. Uh, along the way, they ask for me by name to make sure I'm still on the bus. And when I get back to the hotel, there is a note saying I'm on the next flight out to the United States which actually was to Miami. I wasn't going to Miami. I was going to New York, but um, they said, this is the flight that you're on. Um, I got back uh, to the United States. Um, I was threatened in the United States a number of uh, times when I returned by people who were calling me all sorts of names, calling me all sorts of anti-Semitic uh, terms, uh, that sort of thing. I won't repeat them on the air. And uh, basically being told that uh, you know uh, I was in danger. Um, I immediately uh, lost the job at the Bendix Corporation. Um, obviously, there was some kind of a connection there. I wasn't quite sure what that was. And uh, I tried to alert people to this situation. I talked to the Simon Wiesenthal people, for instance. Uh, they refused to have anything to do with it. As I found out later, um, Simon Wiesenthal himself had deter determined he would not get involved in anything concerning Colonia Dignidad. Uh, there are several books that have been written about the Nazi underground in the next, last couple of years, some academic uh, texts which specifically refer to Simon Wiesenthal and Colonia Dignidad and some reason why he would not uh, want to get involved in any kind of investigation. I think because uh, something to do with geopolitics and Chile and uh, Germany and Austria, et cetera, et cetera. So 
it became uh, a cause celeb for me, but eventually uh, the news about this sort of died off until a couple of years later, and I discovered that Michael Vernon Townley, that you mentioned at the top of this uh, discussion, who was the son of a Ford Motor Company executive in Santiago, Chile, was himself a neo-Nazi. He was very involved with the uh, Fatherland and Liberty Party, Patria Libertad, in Chile, which was a fascist party. He was involved with the uh, neo-Nazi groups in Chile, and he had designed the interrogation cells at Colonia Dignidad, where I was briefly detained. Um, he was some kind of an electronics engineer. He was able to design interrogation cells that could be operated remote by remote control. Um, what was discovered was that a man could sit in a control booth and basically torture a number of people simultaneously in different rooms and interrogate them in different rooms through remote control. They were uh, strapped onto beds that were metal. Electrical current was passed through the metal beds. There were speakers and microphones in each of the rooms. So basically they never saw the person doing the interrogating, uh, asking the questions, and they would instead be uh, submitted to electric shock if they didn't answer uh, quickly enough or answer correctly. Um, this is the kind of thing that was going on at the colony that I just barely escaped um, with my life uh, at this point, I realized. So this is what was going on. This was a center for Operation Condor in South America and Europe. Operation Condor was a an informal uh, group of intelligence and uh, military uh, strategists from Chile and Argentina to Brazil and other countries, but mostly the Southern Cone, in order to go after suspected communists, socialists, people who were against the regime. Uh, Operation Condor's reach extended into Washington, D.C., and extended into Europe. And in Washington, D.C., it was, of course, the assassination of Chilean Ambassador Orlando Letelier by Michael Vernon Townley, the man who designed the interrogation cells at Colonia Dignidad. Townley was eventually arrested for the assassination of Letelier in Washington, D.C. Uh, he is in our um, prison system under an assumed name. Uh, because they don't want anyone to know who he is or where he is. So he's under witness protection, but he's still in prison. And they have found out recently that he was also involved in other assassination attempts against Chilean and other European leaders, and that he was very well aware of the weapons of mass destruction that were being created at Colonia Dignidad, including sarin gas and various other types of poison gases. Um, after the death of Pinochet, um, the Chilean government was able to raid Colonia Dignidad, and they found photographic evidence, which you can see online. There are YouTube videos uh, showing all of the uh, poison gas uh, inventories at Colonia Dignidad, uh, showing some of the torture uh, implementation that they had at the colony, showing all the barbed wire fences, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So when we talk about a worldwide underground Nazi movement. Uh, this existed in my lifetime. It existed uh, in the 1970s when I was there. It continued to exist until only a couple of years ago when the colony was raided numerous times. And by the way, the colony is still there. Chile doesn't know what to do with all the people who were there. These are people who are basically German. Even if they are from Chile, they no longer speak Spanish. They only speak German or English. Um, it's an entire colony of people. There's hundreds of people there. And so the colony still exists. 
but of course their ability to engage in political or military warfare has been removed, but the people are still there, the ideology is still there, and it's a racist, anti-Semitic um, Nazi ideology. Um, no one knows what to do with these people, and uh, they keep coming up with more evidence, they keep finding more uh, buried uh, armaments, uh, buried documents at the colony. Uh, the end of it still has not been, been found, and the leadership of the colony has managed to move a lot of its funds to other countries and to start up operations in different places. And that's just one colony among many other safe houses and sanctuaries around the world that are being used up until this present time by people who, if they were not Nazis in Germany, they are now carrying on the, the fight of those who have already died. Uh, people, we are almost uh, out of time. And one of the points uh, that uh, I think we should make, uh, next week I'd like to go into the uh, various aspects of a chapter of your book that you call Exit Strategy. And uh, the, the point being that, in a sense, the flowers that have sprouted from the seeds that were sown prior to, during, and after, and particularly after World War II are very much with us today, and Colonia Dignitad, uh, Michael Vernon Townley, uh, the Latelier assassination, Operation Condor, are but uh, some of the unsavory fruit that has uh, sprouted from the uh, planting that we will deal with uh, next week. And uh, the exit strategy, I think, uh, is it would be a good place to begin our, our talk next week and talk about some things like the rat lines, the flight capital network, and the incorporation of the Nazi diaspora into the gathering Cold War forces, in particular here in the United States. So, Peter, tell uh, the audience where they can get your book. Certainly. I'd be happy to. Thank you very much. Uh, the Usual Suspects, you can get it at uh, Amazon.com, of course, at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can check the website, which is peterlavenda.com or thehitlerlegacy.com. Uh, you can get some more information there, including some new research that's been conducted since the book is completed. All righty. And again, uh, people ask me, well, what, what can I do? I believe what you're saying. I don't know what to do about it. Getting this book, reading it, and telling other people about it would be a very, very good way to do just that. And uh, I would like to continue uh, this remarkable tale, of the, of the, really the uh, unfolding of this remarkable book in future interviews. We have been speaking with Peter Lavenda, the author of, among other books, The Hitler Legacy and also Unholy Alliance, which we visited uh, in the second half of our interview. And uh, this concludes, for the record, program number eight. 39. Interview number two with Peter Lavenda about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on March 15th of the year 2015. For Peter Lavenda, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.